We're going to continue this message series straight out of context. And um, like I said, last week we clarified some thinking, and I, I, have to, I have to be honest with you, I said something last week that might have been a little out of context. If you were at the beginning of service, I made reference to the New Orleans Saints and the Kansas City Chiefs. By me saying, go Chiefs, that I was saying they were going to win. And you took that out of context. I was just acknowledging that there was a game taking place. And it's preseason, so who cares, right? We're all... Congratulations on a preseason victory. (laughs) Who who that, sure. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're taking time. Um, Over the next few weeks, we actually just extended this series a couple weeks, so it's not just going to be three weeks. We extended it a couple more weeks, and we're taking a scripture every single week, and we're unpacking it and giving context around it, and we're doing that because of what the scripture instructs us as communicators, but also as a church to do in 2 Timothy. It says this, it says, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. Have you ever heard this thought or this scripture, and don't throw it on the screens yet, but it's this idea, God will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody ever heard that? God will give you the desires of your heart. Today's conversation or message is under the question, will God give you the desires of your heart? Will God give you the desires of your heart? Like, is that a a good context phrase to say? So there is a scripture that we'll get into, but if we just say that at face value, that God will give you the desires of your heart, um, because inside of all of us, wired into every single person is like this desire for purpose, um, for fulfillment, for enjoyment, for a good future. Like, we've got a lot of desires inside of our hearts. So when I hear that, I automatically think, hey, sweet. (laughs) I love this kind of God. He'll give me the desires of my heart. Perfect. It's found in Psalm 37, verse 4. And this is what it says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is actually a a really popular verse um, that many people have heard, but also a lot of people say this is their life verse or their favorite verse. One of those people being a a global thought leader, Oprah. Oh, I don't know why you're laughing, but it, it is what she said. And actually, I wanted to show you the way that she communicated about this being her favorite verse. And you can... Uh, Psalms 37.4. Delight thyself. Oh. I love the word delight, don't you? Well, De- yeah. Delight thyself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what that says to me, Lord has a wide range. What is Lord? Compassion, love, forgiveness, kindness. So you delight yourself in those virtues where the character of the Lord is revealed. Delight thyself in goodness, delight thyself in love, kindness and compassion, and you will receive the desires of your heart. Oh, that's Don't interesting. Don't you like that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It says, 
It says to me, if you, if you, if you focus on being a force for good, then mm -hmm. goodness will come, which is also the third law of motion, which is also the karma, which is also the golden rule. Amen? Focus on being a force for good, and good will come. It's really karma. It's the golden rule. It's cause and effect. This is how scripture gets twisted. This is how we take something that's right, and we maybe unknowingly miscontextualize it, and then we present it as truth. And when we present a miscontextualized scripture as truth, then our audience then receives our truth. And we have to be very careful that our truth aligns with the truth. This is why we are so bent on a scripture or a series like this, is that we're, we're hoping that straight out of context will will begin to stir an appetite or, or reignite an appetite in some of you or just help us continue along rightly dividing the word. Because if we read the Bible and we just hope that we get it right, like it's just a novel, then we're leaving up the divine authority of God to be interpreted by our own understanding, our own thoughts, our own life experience when we need supernatural inspiration, but we also need really good context when it comes to the scripture. So what does this verse actually mean? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. Some people interpret this as a promise for material things. And the truth is God may bless God may bless you with material things, but this scripture is not saying that. It's remarkable that this material and theologies have been constructed off of this verse. It's, it's speaking it into existence. It's, if I do this thing, then God will do this thing. It's an if this, then that. It's cause and effect. God may bless you, with material things, but that's not what this verse is saying. And then it's a proper thought, but it's a miscontextualized thought if we take this verse and say what it's saying is that God wants to take our desires and change them to be like his. That's absolutely true. I believe that God wants to give us new hearts with desires that reflect his desires, but that's actually not what this verse is talking about. Which leads us to a spot because the vast majority of us, that's where we've landed. Well, we're usually either in camp one or camp two. What does this verse mean in context? Really, Psalm 37 needs to be read as an entire chapter, as an entire letter. But what we're going to do is we're just going to read the first nine verses that verse 4 is plucked right out of the middle, and we get a much better picture of what the psalmist, about what David is talking about. So you know King David at this point, although it's Psalm 37, a lot of times when we read this, we're thinking, okay, Psalm 37, there's a whole bunch of chapters in Psalms, so this is early on in his life. 
most historians believe that Psalm 37 is written towards the end of King David, where he's reflecting a lot, and he's looking back at a lot of things. So that's the vantage point that he's writing this from. But this is what he says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Here's the one we like. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This chapter is a letter written from David, from himself to his Lord, but to his audience. That his audience, and a lot of people say it's it's absolutely a, a, as early readers, a masterpiece, what he's done in Psalm 37, the way it's structured, focusing people's attention off of the current circumstance. It was acknowledging that wrongdoing is taking place. It was saying, yes, it's happening, but that's not the big thing. Look up. It would acknowledge, but it would say, look up. It would acknowledge, and it would look up. Historically, what's going on here is people are enslaved. They're oppressed. They're being taken advantage of. And the people that are taking advantage of them are prospering. That stinks. That's not fair. But that's what's taking place. This chapter is really about what we are to do when we see wicked people prospering. Psalm 37. So then we think, okay, if that's what Psalm 37 about, then why in the world is delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart? Why is that even there? But let's go into the context for a few moments. We'll be here for 30 more minutes, and then one worship song. I did really good last week, by the way. Good timing. But let's go into the context. Have you guys ever noticed how it seems that a lot of bad people, I don't know a better word, wicked people are succeeding? Just look at the world around us. It seems like the people that are ultra-successful that there's some sort of evil attached to that, or for a lot of people. And it seems like a lot of times their tools to the success that they've earned is on the back of greed, abuse, manipulation, political corruption. This is the context that this was being written in. And... Paul, or David, is writing in a sense of a bit of discouragement. 
And the world that we live in can also be quite discouraging when it seems like I'm doing the right thing, but I'm not getting the results that I want. And they're doing the wrong thing, and they're getting the results that we're too Christian to say that I should have. So let's just say they're getting the results that I wish writing about. And he's writing this, expressing his, his deep desire for justice and for righteousness to actually win. Like, I just want the right thing to take place. I wish that it would be like this. That's the context or the backdrop of these scriptures that we're reading. The thing I love about the word of God is that it's alive and it's active. It says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's still speaking to our lives today and in the same way that injustices have been done in the past, they are still taking place today. Some of you, and some of you in this room have personally experienced some of the very things that we just said. Some of you have experienced abuse. Some of you have been taken advantage of financially. People in power over you. Or we don't even like saying that word, over me. Nobody's over me except God, right? But someone in some sort of authority structure around you uh, abused power. Somebody close to you took advantage of you emotionally, physically. I was reading statistics this week of just abuse, categorically just sexual abuse, and the numbers are just continually on the rise. It says that in humanity, one in every four women have been sexually abused. It says that one in every six men have been. We probably have... 200 people in this room. That means 40 of us. I counted the men too. It's not just, you know what I mean. You know, a devastating thing about that is out of those numbers that 75% of those abuses happen under the age of 17. Another crazy stat in that is that the average age of a female that experiences abuse is under the age of 18. But for males, it's under the age of 10. And you see these numbers just continually increasing. Those stats should frustrate you. They should say something's got to change. It's almost a, a demand for righteousness. It's a demand for the people that are. David speaks to those in his context that have experienced all of these types of things. And he's speaking to them, acknowledging the reality of, of the world, the brokenness that they live in. But then he says God will have his vengeance. The justice of God will prevail. And those are, those are easy things for me to say in this seat. 
they are difficult things to hear because like just today, and maybe it's just kind of a little tired, today's just going to be those days where we're going to be a little bit raw, okay? We want to be the tool or the administer of justice. We do. We want to be the one that, that resolves the issue. We want to be the answer to the problem, and we want to end the atrocities that are taking place in the world that we live in. And I think we want that because there's something inside of us, this righteous indignation that's been placed inside of us. And David is writing, and he's saying, y'all, God will take vengeance. Again, if this is written from the perspective that most historians believe, he's got quite the ability to look back at that very statement that he's making in his own personal life. In his own home, he saw this. He saw justice served and justice attempted to be taken into humans' hands on full display and it end very badly. I can paint the picture for you, but in 2 Samuel chapter 13, King David's son, his oldest son, his name is Amnon. And Amnon has some step-siblings. One of them is Tamar. That's his sister, a stepsister. And he took advantage of her. Because of the ages of people in this room, you can read 2 Samuel 13 and realize what that is. But she would have been a statistic that we just mentioned. He took advantage of her and then he threw her out. David's third son, Absalom, was enraged. And he said, do something about it, dad. Do something about it, king. <laughs> dad, king, whoever you are right now, do something about it. Administer justice. And it wasn't happening quick enough. So Absalom took it into his own hands because he felt his dad was too slow to execute. And then all the things that take place because Absalom stepped in and did something he really shouldn't have done. It wasn't his spot to take. When we take justice into our own hands, what we do is we often become bitter we hold grudges, and we end up being the ones in destruction. This is not easy to hear, especially if the offense has been great in your life or to those close to you. The reason I put that on the screen is because that's what Psalm 37 says. When we take justice into our own hands, what happens is it becomes this poison in our own heart. It becomes all we think about. It becomes anytime I'm around that person. It becomes anytime I'm around, anytime I'm on Facebook and I see that, see that name, see that address, the street name of where the person lived. Any association with them, it's this bitterness, it's a grudge. 
It's a grudge that I'm going to get my revenge, but what happens is for Absalom, it ended up costing him his life. It ends up in destruction. And all throughout the Bible, scriptures talk to us about taking, taking vengeance into our own hands. Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine. That word mine is a capital M. It's God speaking. It says, vengeance is mine and I will be the one that repays it. Proverbs 20 says, don't say I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord and he will save you. That was written by David's son. Proverbs 24 says, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will repay the man according to his work. When you really start to look at this and look at the entirety of scripture, but Psalm 37 in particular, you start to see some things line up with different things that the New Testament says. In John chapter 10 we see that God has this remarkable plan for our lives. God's got a plan of life and life more abundantly, but we also see that the enemy has a plan for our lives. And we see these dual plans for each and every one of our lives. The enemy's plan for our life is that we would be, that the enemy comes to steal, he comes to kill, and he comes to destroy our life. And I think very early on in Psalm 37, David is saying, when we take justice into our own hands, we, what we're doing is we're, seek, we're seeking to steal the other person's joy. Why? Because they stole ours. So it's an eye for an eye, right? I'm going to take what they took. Their future. You took mine. You killed my future. I'm going to kill yours. I want to destroy your life. And I know this is strong language, but this is, this is the truth. And what we don't realize is because of this oftentimes righteous indignation and this atrocity that's taken place to us, we step into the enemy's plan for our own lives because we are taking it into our own hands. What do we do? What do we do with something like this? So we just sit back and... No, that's not what we do, but we started this service with the song, uh, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And I think for too long, we've just said, okay, that means Christians are weak. They're sissies. And oftentimes, that's one of the reasons that Christianity is not attractive to men. Because God has created men to fight. And some women, too. <laughs> some of you are like, no, nah, I want to get up in this, too. <laughs> Let's roll. <laughs> so what I want to do with the scripture, and I think contextually it's appropriate to do, is I want to channel the very fight that God's put inside of every single one of us and fight, but fight knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord. King David is able to look back and probably realize, Absalom, I just wish, I just wish 
that you would have waited. Here's David's instructions through Psalm 37. This is what he says we're supposed to do in the midst of all of these types of things. He says, when wickedness prevails, trust and obey God, and he'll, and he'll vindicate you. In the scripture, he, and he says, don't fear or envy them. The instruction to us very early on is first, don't be scared of them. It's weird what success will do. Success will either um, scare you, <laughs> like, oh, that person's got a lot, or they've done a lot, they've accomplished a lot, so I'm, I'm scared of them. David's saying, hey, don't fear those. He says, but also don't envy them. Envy means I want what they, what they got. And envy oftentimes says I'll do what they've done to get what they got. So I'm saying let's, let's not play the same game that they are playing. We live in a different world. We live in a different structure. As Christians and as called out ones, the, the world that we inhabit is temporary. And sometimes we are going to have to walk through ridiculous things on this earth. Around ridiculous, wicked people. But David's saying, don't fear or envy them. He says, instead, trust. Trust. Trust is probably the most difficult thing to do. Because no one's trustworthy. Nobody. None of you are 100% trustworthy. And now you can all look at me and say, and you aren't either. Because we're human. And a lot of times when we see God in this authority position that he rightfully is in, and we're called to trust him, our best ability to trust is based on our best human understanding of what trust actually is. And trust has been broken, but David's saying trust and delight in God, like enjoy being around God. Enjoy the process of growing in God. He says, be faithful. Keep going. Keep going when the battle ramps up, stay in. Oftentimes, the two greatest moments where people abandon their faith are in extreme success, when God's not needed anymore, or in the extreme lows, when God isn't with me anymore. And both are wrong. God is with me at all times. He is omnipresent. Be faithful. Right now, things are good. Guys, I don't know what the future of your life looks like. There will be things that come into your life that challenge your faith. I'm getting ready to talk to parents tonight at parent night. And one of the things that I'm going to share with parents, so if you're there, act surprised when you hear it. <laughs> is that your kids are going to let you down. They're going to let you down. But it's how you respond in the letdown moments that reveals the gospel to them, but develops the Christian in you. And I think sometimes when we're following you today, 
when you see wickedness around succeeding, just keep going. Pastor Van, our previous senior pastor, says this all the time. He says, lay low, go slow. (laughs) Stay humble. Stay faithful. You don't have to be at a... At a sprint pace, I was talking with uh, our student director this last week. And he said, Mikey, you're teaching me that ministry is a marathon, not not a sprint. And I'll say this, Christianity is a marathon, not a sprint. Settle into a pace, a rhythm, a routine, and just be faithful. Be faithful, and David says, wait patiently for God. Wait patiently for God, which means it's going to be in his timing. His timing is oftentimes not our timing. And most of the time, his timing is longer than ours. I think most of our Christianity and most of our expectations for God are flash fried, and he's into slow cooking. Slow cooking is beautiful. What it does You've heard it before, but there's like on a, there's something called the stall. When a, when a piece of meat gets to like 165 degrees, it seems like it stops cooking. And it sits at 160, certain cuts of meat, it sits at like 165 degrees, sometimes for an hour and a half or two hours. And the temptation is do something. <laughs> like fix it, turn the heat up, do something, start cooking. And if you're patient, what's actually taking place in that piece of meat is all of the hard fibers at 165 degrees, all that fat, all that muscle, all that stuff that's hard is softening up. And it's releasing into the rest of the meat. And it's becoming an incredible dish. But if you force that you'll miss what that piece of meat actually could have been in the same way If we force the hand of God, I don't know. Wait patiently for the Lord and don't be angry. I hate that he threw that one in. (laughs) Like, come on. What? No, I'm going to be a little mad, right? (laughs) He says, be faithful in what seems to be the delay of God's just judgment. It's amazing to me that David was saying these things. This is in Psalm 37 because two chapters before the story of Amnon and Absalom and the wickedness and all those things taking place, David himself was the wicked man. He was the abuser. He was the oppressor. He was the murderer. He was the home wrecker. You see, I don't know what it is, guys. I kicked over my water. I don't know what it is. I don't know why we demand justice for everyone else, but don't expect it for ourselves. And like, we're quick to say, Do something about this, God. (laughs) 
but God's delayed hand and judgment on our own lives we're totally cool with. This is where the gospel completely neutralizes the playing field. The gospel says that all of us, all of us are the wicked. All of us are the perverse. And I know what we try to do instantly. We try to justify. We're like, yeah, but not like that. <laughs> not like that. Unrighteousness is unrighteousness. Sin all carries the same price. So as we scan out a little bit, we can become deeply appreciative that God's justice is delayed because it gave opportunity for a sinner to be saved. I think Psalm 37, 4 is best summarized in this, and I'm going to end here. Is that Christianity is not about delighting in the Lord to get something. Christianity is knowing that Jesus is what we delight in. And when that becomes what we live for, then we can have a confidence or a trust that the world that we live in, although there is going to be terrible things that take place, that God is still in control. And God will, because he is just, God will judge. We were in message prep this week, and the, I had to repent. I had to repent. Because the idea was that some of the people that have committed the greatest crimes, if they surrender their life to Jesus in the last moments of their life, I might be worshiping beside them in heaven. Am I okay with that? And my first thought, uh, I'm not, I mean, maybe, maybe they'll sit over there. <laughs> my heart was off. But if we delight in the Lord, he'll sustain us. He'll sustain us. There will be times that we have to call to fight. <laughs> but knowing that God is the one that brings justice.